Welcome to the Surveillance Board 158 Q&A, where we are answering questions from our patrons who contribute $5 a month or more to Patreon. So if you want to ask us a question, be sure to join Patreon at $5 a month or more. Make sure you guys stick around for the whole video because we have an update to a question from last week, actually, from someone who has personal experience with said question. Our first question is a great one from Captain Morgan. What are the misconceptions or myths in the digital privacy and security space that frustrate you the most? Oh, man, I I feel like we could go on about this for hours. Uh, This would make a good video, actually. I think you've probably done one or two. I think I have. I think it's called, like, Privacy Myths. There's a book I haven't read yet, but it's called Privacy is Hard and Seven Other Myths About Privacy or something like that. I really want to read it. Our video is called Privacy is Futile, dot, 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 unless... And it kind of ties into, like, the whole myth of privacy in general. There's, like, so many answers I could give to this one. I'm going to be honest. Nothing's coming to mind at the moment. I had kind of a good day, so my brain's not really in that headspace. If I had to pick off the top of my head, I would say... And I know, like, as soon as we record, I'm going to think of, like, oh, no, this one! But I think at the moment, probably the biggest thing that's bugging me is just, like, the all-or-nothing thinking. Like, if you're not using cubes with the most secure phone OS with, like you know, no internet at home and like tour on everything. It's like, you just may as well not even bother. And that's a big one that bugs me. My main one is people really believe that there's like a single path towards better privacy and security and, or there's a single option. And one thing is always better than the other thing when it's extremely personal preference, extremely personal preference. Like one service can be fantastic for 99% of people and actually detrimental and ruin that 1% threat model as well. And I see this with, especially the coaching that I do with clients. One client, I tell them, hey, this is what I, we generally do with people, but they go, no, 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 that won't work for me because I have this thing in my life that would actually jeopardize me if I use a service like this. Great example is Signal. Signal, I've talked about this in the past. If you're in a domestic abuse situation and you need to hide the fact that you're using Signal, Signal makes plausible deniability kind of tricky because if you use your core phone number with Signal and someone else is using using Signal, they're going to be notified if you join Signal. Let's say you didn't have Signal yet and you join Signal. I can turn off, you know, notify me if Nate joins Signal, but you can't force that on your other contacts. So you can be in a domestic abuse situation and if you join Signal, it's going to notify your domestic abuser if they're on Signal and they have the same contact phone number. So that's a situation where a tool that we generally always appreciate and recommend for most people, which is Signal, actually works against a specific user. And this is why in our coaching application now, we have a whole thing that's like, hey, in certain situations, we're not going to use Signal, so please let us know and mark this checkbox if that's you. There's a million of these uh, gotchas, I should say. But there's so many of them and there's so many different circumstances that it really comes down to like, you know, 10 people who have the same values but just live different lifestyles or 10 people with the same lifestyles but different values can all be very private and secure and be using totally different operating systems, totally different aliasing solutions, totally different email providers, and they're both going to be in a very similar place. So that's my biggest thing. That's my biggest privacy myth is that people think that one thing is just always better than the other. Like, oh no, this is better because it has this feature. And it's like, but is it always better? What if it's not better? Like, did you think about the entire picture? No, of course not. I was going to add on to that real quick. I, you reminded me of what I was going to say right before we ended the podcast. I was like, man, there was something I was going to say, but I can't remember what. And I remembered what it was. And this is actually another one of my big frustrations. Confirmation bias. I've been listening to a lot of books about psychology lately and disinformation and like how people believe things that aren't true. 
And one thing people notice is like, you need to be extra suspicious when something confirms your bias. So like, it's one thing to be like, I don't know, say your favorite color is purple. And there's a study that's like, purple's bad for you. Obviously you're going to be skeptical of that. But when there's a study that comes out that says like, actually purple makes you live 10 years longer and grow six feet tall. That's when you need to be like, okay, hold on. Is that true? Because this is confirming my bias. And I think that's one of my big things that frustrates me in the privacy community is I'm I'm not going to name names for obvious reasons, but there's so many people out there that are spreading at best like half truths or exaggerations and people are just like oh but this guy's like awesome like he's so good like i love this guy i watch every one of his videos believe every word he says because he's confirming your bias because you want to believe that like the nsa is after you and you know this is the the best way like this super obscure messenger that requires you to like compile the code and messenger pigeons and the whole nine and like it just people just buy into it and it's like but there's no actual evidence and actually there's evidence to the contrary so like i i think that's a big thing that frustrates me is people just buying into like whatever confirms their biases and i mean we're all guilty of it i'm sure i've done it a few times but well everyone's victim to it that's actually the most critical thing that people need to be aware of is that no one's immune to confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance and being aware of that fact and working to ensure that you are setting up boundaries for yourself and constantly checking yourself is the most important thing. I don't know if you've listened to it, Nate, because I know you don't really watch Techler Talks, but Techler Talks 3 is titled Cognitive Dissonance and Confirmation Bias. And Jonah and I just like fully break down the terms, what they mean, and how we see these play out every day in the privacy community. And it applies to every community, but we also see it a lot. I mean, it's what we live in, and so we see it a lot in this community. So if people want like a really thorough like 33-minute <laughs> take on the psychology of the privacy world. That's something that we did. And then actually someone liked it so much that they wrote their own article on Substack, which was a response to our Techler talks and they added their own because they're a psychology student. And so they added their own takes as well to what we shared. So I'll try to leave that. Next question is from Cracker Barrel Biscuits. What do you guys think about using the BitTorrent protocol for decentralized file sync? My idea was to run torrent clients on several devices and use a magnet link to sync files across all devices. Are there any major downsides to this compared to something like SyncThing? Any tips on how to increase the security for this approach? My first thing when I was reading this was why wouldn't you just use SyncThing? I don't really understand the benefit to your BitTorrent protocol approach versus using something like SyncThing or using a traditional, even using a traditional cloud provider. As as long as it's end-to-end encrypted and it's, you know, overall safe and secure, I don't actually understand the real benefit to this. I don't think that there isn't an, an inherent issue with it, but it seems super inconvenient. And as you probably know, it's not super versatile either because you're going to have to have a client that can handle the BitTorrent protocol and you're not going to be able to set that up on iOS, for example. So if you ever wanted to kind of you know, share this experience with anyone else in your life, uh, it might be challenging for them. I'm kind of with you is I would start with the question of what problem are you trying to solve? Like you say decentralized file sync, but like, what do you mean decentralized? Like, are you trying to say, I want to retain ownership of it? In which case, like, yeah, why not just use something like Proton or, or Filein and have it on multiple devices? Because I, I understand we just talked earlier on the podcast about, like, making sure you have backups of your files. And is that where you're going? There's a lot of ways to do that. This just seems overly complicated for no reason. I will say, if you are super married to this idea, as is, I'm not providing any promises for this. But there is a storage solution that somebody alerted me to called Qubit, C-U-B-B-I-T. And their whole thing is it's decentralized storage. I'm not really a fan of this. I think it's kind of weird. But basically, they 
kind of break up your your data they encrypt it and then they split it into chunks across a global peer-to-peer network that could be something we're checking out if if this is something you're looking for maybe maybe that's what you're trying to accomplish Okay, Mr. Camel, what voice over IP service would you recommend for Android just simply for generating new numbers for each service I use that wants a phone number and I want control of that number for when they send an SMS verification code? I've looked at my pseudo, but they seem to not really support Android. So my first question is, what do you mean they don't support Android? Because I have my pseudo on my Pixel and it's working fine. It worked on my end too, so. I'm not going to lie, the ringing is a little hit or miss sometimes, but it works 99% of the time. It works just fine. It's definitely not as good as iOS, but it's definitely supported. For generating new numbers for each service, that's kind of a tall order, unless you only have 15 services that need a phone number and literally nothing else. Or not 15, um, what is it, nine? I they max out at nine, I think. I think it's yeah. nine. Otherwise, I would say, like, if you're going to generate a lot of them, I would say you could use Google Voice. But keep in mind, I think they want you to pay for numbers that you haven't used for a while. Just kind of one of those, like, they delete inactive phone numbers, I think. So keep that in mind. Honestly, if you're generating a lot of phone numbers, I think that's probably going to be your best bet. For the record, I haven't tested this out. It's on my to-do list. But there's this new app called Cloaked. I think they're, like, 10 bucks a month. And they generate... They're one of those, like, they're a password manager, they're a phone number, there's several things at once, but the only thing I really give a crap about is they generate multiple phone numbers that you can use. And the reason I'm interested, and again, have not tested this, take this with a grain of salt, I read in an interview with them that they claim that each phone number behaves like an actual phone number. Like, it's not voice over IP, it's an actual SIM phone number that will be accepted on places like X slash Twitter, Discord, like, all these places that are like, no, you have to give us a real phone number, they will allegedly accept these. Again, haven't tested it. Want to make that very clear. But even if they don't, you, you're talking about VoIP numbers. So I would look into them because I think they're just a flat fee. I'm sure they have a limit, but it's probably pretty higher. Um, those are probably going to be your best bets, in my opinion. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. No, not much. I have used Hushed on Android, but um, I thought it was a miserable experience. And it's also going to suffer the same issue of it's not going to... I think it's a very, 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 like Nate said, tall order to expect to have, as of right now, based on the tools I've used, to have an, a unique phone number for each service, which is why I group up. Just I, I use like four or five different phone numbers for different categories of things that I do. Same here. Oh, and I forgot to mention, the new oil.org has a voice over IP section that lists all of my current recommendations aside from cloaked I, I should probably add that one if you want to check out some other ones you can maybe check those out up next from david johnson what do you think about the pros and cons of subscribing to more than one data removal service and you pretty much get into maybe one will pick one up that the other one doesn't and uh, it could also be a risk because some of these like net scrubbers just indiscriminately sends out your personal information to all of them to ask them to remove you which might actually spread more information about you it's a good question honestly i don't think either of us fully know for a fact what the best move is here because this is such a weird industry that seems to have so much uh, mystery and fog surrounding it but on my end i just use one i think that like nate probably says you can always do diy you can kind of check on a lot of these things yourself and i already see one as more of your safety net you know like i think you're the goalkeeper you're the diy person you're the person in front of the goal and if you miss something, you already have that safety net behind you, uh, and that can be one service. And I don't really see the benefit of having a second safety net behind that. I'm trying to use soccer analogies for this. As long as the service itself isn't bad, it probably won't do you any harm unless it's a service that's going to send out all your information outside of you know costing you more money. So first of all, I, I want to note the question specifically mentions on my website, I, I recommend three services. These are just three services that are either 
well-reputed it in the community, such as Delete Me, or I have personally spoken to the people behind these services, and I'm like, okay, I feel like you're serious about this, you're not in bed with the data brokers, and you've sufficiently answered my questions and expressed a level of transparency that I trust you, and I would feel comfortable recommending you to someone. The reason I mention that is because I don't actually have a criteria for these services, and I would love to make this more objective. So if anybody listening is like, oh, this would be a really good criteria, please let me know because I would like to make this more objective. That's what I try to do with the website is I try really hard to make it objective so that my personal opinions don't matter. And just if you meet the criteria, you get listed regardless of whether I think you suck or not. And just for the record, there are a couple services listed that I'm not really a fan of the people behind them, but they meet the criteria, so they're listed. That's why. I do outline this on the website. I don't think it's a wise idea to rely entirely on any of these services, but I basically offer, for those of you who have never seen the page, I basically offer two options. And I say this, I said there's two ways to go about doing this, the automated way and the manual way. The automated way is easiest and will likely work for the vast majority of people with low threat models. In this case, you can go with data removal services, such as like the ones listed here, blah, blah, blah. And then further down, I say for those who wish to do so manually, and then I link to Michael Basil's workbook, which will help you scrub this information. I say for those with the time, the manual removal is by far the best. It allows you to ensure you've got all the data possible and even catches some stuff the automated services may miss. Or you can decide if you want to leave certain information up for any reason, like incorrect information to throw off a would-be stalker. And then I go on to say for those with some time to spare, but not a lot, I recommend a mix of both approaches. An automated service can be a great way to get the bulk of the removal, doing all the quote-unquote low-hanging fruit. Then you can come back a few months later and check for any remnants. So... Honestly, that is what I recommend. And I'm, I mentioned here, again, on the website, the more data you remove, the more the old forgotten stuff will rise to the surface. Therefore, I encourage you to go back a few times a year and check for anything the automated services have missed. This may include forgotten social media posts, accounts, or new smaller public data sites. Honestly, yeah, I would say just pay for one and then just maybe a couple times a year, just kind of like try to find yourself. And that's the thing is not to get off topic, but in science, the way you're supposed to do things is when you set your hypothesis – you're supposed to try to prove it wrong. So if you're setting out to say, I think lemons make people live forever, you're not supposed to set out and find examples of people who ate a lemon every day and live forever. You're supposed to set out and find an example of people who ate a lemon every day and still died. And that's what you should be doing here is you shouldn't say like, you know, I Googled my name once and nothing came up on the first page. Dig in deep, look for your name, look for misspellings of your names, look for different versions of your name, look for your phone numbers, look for run your face through facial recognition services out there. Like do all these things and really look hard and be like, if I was an attacker, how would I find myself? And I know that's a lot of work for the record, but I, I think that's where you're going to have the best bet is use the, one of these services to like really get the low hanging fruit. If you want to, I interviewed uh, is it Rob Shavel, I believe his name is, who's the CEO of Abon, delete me. Uh, I've done two interviews with him on TechLore if you want to like learn more about these industries and how they how they do this. So our next question comes from the dressing gown who says, What is your understanding of fingerprint or face unlock versus pin password on Android from a privacy point of view? Does it depend on the hardware or software companies such as Samsung versus Xiaomi? Xiaomi, sorry. And what are your thoughts or recommendations of it, or is it all the same regardless? I think there's value in it. We covered a story in the past where people are like looking over your shoulder to see you unlock your iPhone. And then they literally snatch it out of your hand and like send all the money to themselves. I'm not a fan of face unlock. One, because it's annoying. Two, because we've heard. And again, threat model really comes into play here. If you never go anywhere, if you never do anything, if you're not a high value person, probably safe to use face unlock. But we've heard stories of like police will just turn the phone and face you. And then once it's unlocked, they'll illegally search your phone, which for the record, yes, that's illegal. You can sue them, but that doesn't undo the damage at the moment. 
I've heard some people recommend setting like a really secure password and then using fingerprint because it's a pain to type in a password constantly. I can attest to that. I tried that for a while and it sucked. From a privacy perspective, according to Google and Apple, this is all supposed to be done on device. They're not supposed to be sending your fingerprint or face to any server. So in theory, it should be safe. But again, threat model. If if I had the government coming after me, I wouldn't trust Samsung, to be totally honest. Yeah, this is a, it's a fun question because this is an area where we've been criticized in the past because we've covered stories in the past where a fingerprint unlock was attacked. And we said, hey, if this is an attack that is something that you want to prevent, then you should disable your biometrics and just use passwords. They've also had password attacks where a biometric unlock would have actually prevented the situation and in those situations we also said in the same podcast maybe you should use biometrics if you want to avoid this attack and so people are going well they're so conflicted and it's because it's complicated and it's very nuanced and it's going to depend a lot on what you're protecting against and what threats are realistic to you if you're traveling and you're getting on a plane or you're going to cross a border and there's a likelihood that you're going to be searched i probably wouldn't be using biometrics I would probably have a super strong password, and I would even consider not having any sensitive data on the device altogether. If I'm just doing my day-to-day life, and I don't have to concern myself too much, I'm going to probably use biometrics, because it's actually probably worse to be on a bus and just type my password in front of everybody that I might use for a different account login as well, and they can just grab my device and run away. So, just depends, people. It's tough to get into the nitty-gritty, but that is what we have to do. Next question is also from The Dressing Gown, and it's also a follow-up question before we get into the update. So the follow-up is about online purchases. They asked last week about trying to use pseudonyms for things, and I believe they're in the UK, and they were trying to figure out what services to use. And they pretty much are saying they're just trying to keep as much data as possible from being of any use to data brokers, so they'd like to have a different pseudo for specific genres or location of purchase as appropriate. Each with a separate email, delivery address, separate number, since most online purchases they seem to make require a mobile number and numerous anonymous payment cards. So they might consider it excessive, but it's their aim just because they'd rather not fall victim after a data breach and they'd rather not have their info bought and sold all over online. And they feel it's becoming more of a requirement as time goes on where it's harder to buy products in person with the death of High Street currently upon us. And they said they did find a way to have a private mailbox, but it's pretty expensive. So they don't know if they want to go with that option. I think I'm going to actually go back to what Nate said, I believe last week. Nate pretty much said like, you have to be aware of what exactly you're protecting yourself from because it's unlikely that one purchase is necessarily like instantly going to be correlated with something else and it completely de-anonymize you as an individual. So you need to just be aware of what exactly you are trying to protect in this situation. And maybe you won't be able to protect certain things. You know, if you're not going to pay for that address, then maybe you can still ship things to your address, but you get away with not using your real name, right? Like that's one thing to help disconnect that shipment. I really, if I were you, because it sounds like it's not as easy as it is in the States to anonymize certain information. If I were you, I would just do as best as you can and just try to pick reputable services that have good websites, that limit the use of trackers on their websites, that have nice quality privacy policies. And I would actually try to centralize things if you can a little bit. That's my approach. Some people might disagree and think that it's better to make individual purchases across different areas but i care about my time and i would rather just put in time into one account that i can use to order a multitude of things and that's already set up for me and that way i only have to trust and keep track of one company and trust one company versus having to trust a multitude of companies but that's just me i think when you uh when you talk about having different pseudos for like data brokers and stuff 
I think with addresses, that's kind of hard. So first of all, you said that P.O. boxes in the UK are about 420 to 510 USD. That is insanely high. If, if that's per month, it is. But I think it's per year because I know in the US you pay per year through USPS. I've never paid anywhere remotely that close. I think the most expensive one I've ever paid for was in the low 200s. And I was pretty pissed that whole day because that was the most expensive I've ever paid for by a wide margin. I don't know exactly where you live. Maybe you live in an expensive area like London. Like I could see myself paying 400 bucks in New York City. By my standards, that's crazy high. And I would literally laugh on my way out of the building. So in light of that, yeah, that's really expensive. I don't expect you to pay for that. But I was going to say, even when you get a P.O. box, I only have so many physical addresses at my disposal. I have the P.O. box. I have my actual address. I have work. And then I have some friends and family. And the friends and family thing are kind of tricky because when I'm trying to protect myself from data breaches, and I mean, I'm a, I'm a public figure. So the thing is, I don't want people harassing my family members because that's the address they found and they think that it's me. Or even if they don't think it's me, they know this is a family member and now they're going to harass them to piss me off. So that one's kind of just out for me. For you, that may not be as much of a big deal. This, this kind of goes back to, again, threat modeling. You say like, okay, I'm trying to opt out of data breaches. Okay, but what's the worst thing you think is going to happen with those data breaches? And I don't mean that in a dismissive way, but like literally for me, the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to get doxxed. There are lunatics out there who for some reason think that saying an objective fact like signal is secure is somehow controversial and they're going to be pissed off and try to attack me over it. That's my concern with a data breach. It's not the information's out there. It's the fact that someone is actively going to try to abuse it. Is that a possibility for you? And for the record, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Maybe in the future, you'll decide you want a career in politics or something. That could happen. I respect that. But for now, work with the information you have. You're never going to have all the information. Going back to what I was saying, though, you know, you, there's only so many options you have. I can't give every single service a new address except for like digital goods because then I don't care. But if I actually want to get a package or something, I only have so many choices at my disposal. So what me personally I do is, like I mentioned last time, I send work stuff to the office I send personal stuff to the P.O. box. That's kind of all I got. I don't have like five different ghost addresses or anything like that like some people do. Hopefully that helps. That's kind of really all I got on that one. And then real quick, we have an update from last week. So somebody asked about traveling to China and what our suggestions were. And we offered our best opinions. And thankfully, someone who's actually traveled to China kind of chimed in. It was like, I have a better opinion. So this person has traveled all over Asia quite extensively over the past several years, and here's what they said. China blocks everything from the West. They will search your phone. They do not accept Western credit cards, and many places do not accept cash as everything is done online. The only communication app used is WeChat. I don't think that's technically the only one. I think that's just the most popular one, like how WhatsApp is kind of popular in a lot of places. People that I know who go to China to work always take a different phone with WeChat pre-installed on it as you can use the payment system once you're there. People then return and factory reset the phone as the internet there has installed spyware before. And I think, granted this was kind of an exception, but I think we saw that in the Olympics recently in China was a lot of athletes were being issued burner phones and there were a lot of accusations that China was like remotely exploiting people's phones. They said that the last time they were in China, which was over 10 years ago, I was questioned at the border, but they did not take my phone, and the internet was different then. However, as a foreigner, you have to register with the police everywhere you go unless you go on a tour, in which case the tour company does that for you. I personally wouldn't go to China unless you have business or family there, as international relationships have soured since the last time I was there. I have also heard that if you roam in China, like put on, turn on the roaming on your phone, you can access the non-Chinese internet. I'm not sure how true that is. Getting a VPN can also be useful, but they could be considered illegal. 
just wanted to share that from someone who actually has boots on the ground experience. I know not everybody has that privilege, but your best option may just be to get a burner phone. Or I know one thing we said last week was reset your phone and just tell people like, hey, I'm going to be in China. I'm not going to be able to have any sensitive conversations until we get back. So watch what you say, because you will be under additional scrutiny since you're a foreigner. And if you're going there for business, demand that they issue you a company phone, because if my company sent me to China, I definitely would. And for the record, for anyone asking, I did get permission from them to share all of that. That was the Q&A this week. Thank you guys for tuning in. If you want to ask a question for next week, the question is already live on Patreon. And for $5 a month or more, you get to ask a question. So thank you guys for watching and tune in this weekend for the upcoming Surveillance Report, I think 159. And we'll see you then.